Ligonier Ministries, the home of Renewing Your Mind, presents Dust to Glory, an overview of the Bible with R.C. Sproul. We traditionally call the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. It's often also referred to among Jewish people, particularly as the Torah or the Book of the Law. But it's called the Pentateuch because the prefix penta, of course, means five, like the Pentagon. But some have argued that the Old Testament originally was arranged differently and that the first six books of the Old Testament were grouped together and were consequently called not the Pentateuch, but the Hexateuch meaning the first six books of the Bible, including the book of Joshua. Now, I think the weight of the evidence is to the contrary and that there was a clear uh, line of demarcation between the book of Deuteronomy that ended the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua. But I only mentioned that little detail in passing to call attention to the idea that even though Joshua begins a new dimension of Old Testament history, there is still tremendous continuity that exists between the period of Moses and the end of the Pentateuch and the beginning of the book of Joshua. Because the book of Joshua records for us the record of the conquest of Canaan. It is the story of God's delivering the enemies of Israel into their hands and the the first dimension of fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs of a promised land. And so here we see the transition from wilderness wandering to conquest and settlement in the land of Canaan. But as I said, there is a certain continuity that exists between the Pentateuch and this new chapter in redemptive history of the conquest of Canaan. Joshua is a figure who appears prominently in the Pentateuch. He functions as the chief lieutenant for Moses. And we remember Joshua for being one of the two faithful spies who had been sent out to spy out the promised land. And the rest of the spies came back and said, oh, there's giants in the land and the land is difficult. And if we try to go over there, we'll get annihilated and so on. And they were cringing in terror before the obstacles that stood in their path to possess this land. Whereas the only thing Caleb and Joshua see is the opportunity, and they come back and say it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and they bring back samples of the delightful things that were found there. And we recall that after all of these years of wandering in the wilderness, this mighty host of Jewish people or Israelites who had been redeemed by the Exodus all die in the wilderness without ever possessing the promised land. And even Moses is prohibited from entering into Canaan because of striking the stone uh, with his rod. Now God allows him the opportunity to stand on the mountain and to gaze into the promised land. He has a vision for the future of his people, but he himself is not permitted to enter. And the only 
survivors are, who are allowed to enter the promised land from the original core were Caleb and Joshua. And so one of the things that we see at the end of the Pentateuch is a record of the renewal of the covenant that God had made with Moses at the time of Moses' impending death. And there is a dynamic that's taking place here that has a name for it in theology, and it's called dynamic succession. I'm sorry. And this is called, not dynamic succession, but dynastic it was dynamic as well, but dynastic succession is the kind of things that you find in monarchies where the royal authority is passed from father to son or mother to son or father to daughter, where the, the crown is a matter of biological inheritance. And we talk about the various dynasties that have arisen in nations throughout history. We saw it with the house of Omri in the monarchy of Israel. We see it with the house of David where the kingdom transfers to his son Solomon and then to his son and so on. This is what we call dynastic succession. Now this happens in the Old Testament not only with respect to kings, but it also has to do with the succession of the leading personage who is in authority. And the principle of dynamic succession takes place at the end of the uh, Pentateuch when Moses is about to die and he gathers the people together and makes them swear their allegiance to his successor. And his successor is Joshua. Now this is a stretch and few have seen it, but an argument can be made that our Lord Himself in the upper room the night before He died had a covenant renewal celebration very similar to that which happened in Moab and later on in Shechem in the Old Testament where He gathers His disciples and gives the longest discourse that He ever gives in His life that we know of on the ministry of the Holy Spirit where he gathers his friends and says, let yet a little while and you see me no more, and I'm going away, and where I'm going you can't come, but I will not leave you comfortless. I will send you another advocate, even the Holy Spirit. And there's a certain sense, I think, in which every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate, among other things, the presence of the Holy Spirit as Christ's representative with us. And every time we sit down and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we renew the covenant promises. So there's this whole principle of renewal and of continuity runs like a thread throughout the Old Testament. And here, the book of Joshua is about the successor of Moses, whom now God has ordained and appointed to lead the people from the wilderness into the promised land. And we get a hint of what is to take place in the very first chapter of the book of Joshua when chapter 1 begins with these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And then in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Again, in the patriarchal blessing, going back to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, the part, an, an integral part of that patriarchal promise was God's solemn oath that he would be with them. And he promised it to Moses, and now that patriarchal blessing is being transferred to to Joshua with the promise that God will be with him. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all of the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. And so with this solemn charge, Joshua receives the promise of victory, the promise of God's presence, the promise that God will continue to exercise his role as the divine warrior who fights for his people and who goes before his people to ensure victory and to ensure conquest against this alien country. But with that promise of blessing always comes the call to responsibility to keep the terms of the covenant, to keep the laws that God had spoken to the people through Moses. Now the book of Joshua reads like a, a, a military history because that's what it is. And it, it, it's exciting. It has the interest and drama of a novel as we read all of these uh, exciting episodes that take place in the conquest. One of my favorite uh, uh, chapters is the fifth chapter where in the fifth chapter of Joshua, Joshua is preparing for battle and all of a sudden, unannounced and out of nowhere, this awesome warrior appears in Joshua's path. And Joshua looks at him, just by looking at him, he can tell that he is a formidable warrior. And Joshua doesn't know whether he is one of his own men or whether he is one of the enemy. And so Joshua approaches him and says to him, Are you for us or against us? Now, that's an either-or proposition. Joshua's looking, he says, Either you're fighting for them or you're fighting for us. It's one or the other. Now, are you for us or against us? And, of course, this warrior looks at Joshua and says, No. Wait a minute. No. (laughs) No. It's got to be one or the other. He said, for I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. So what's the significance of this encounter? Joshua meets the captain of the Lord of hosts when he says, are you for them, are you for us? And he says, no, what he's saying to them, neither, Joshua. The question is not, am I for you, but are you for me? Because I'm in charge. Reminding Joshua that the whole 
power of this conquest will be in the hands of God and not in the hands of Joshua. That Joshua is, though he is general over all of the armies and has now the authority that has been invested in the transfer from Moses, nevertheless, he is fighting for the Lord. And it is the captain of the Lord of hosts who leads the nation into battle. Now, some scholars believe that the captain of the Lord of hosts was simply an angel who was speaking the word of God to Joshua. But others look at that title, Captain of the Lord of Hosts, to mean not simply an archangel, but the supreme captain of the Lord of Hosts, Christ himself. And many see in this text what we call a Christophany, that is an Old Testament manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. I personally favor that interpretation of that event. Now, then we read the, the history of the conquest and the, the mighty victory that God gives to the people of Israel at the Battle of Jericho. The Battle of Jericho has the story of Rahab, who hides the spies and uh, earns a place in the roll call of heroes in the book of, of uh, Hebrews, and how God prevails over this city again demonstrating his power that the city of Jericho falls not because of the might of the Israelite army, but because of the power of God. And then we read of that sad chapter of the defeat of the Israelites at the city of Ai. Had not God promised that all of those enemies that uh, stood against them would be conquered? How could they lose why did they lose? Because of Achan's sin that is recorded in there, where after the battle of Jericho, he stole some of the booty from the, uh, from the conquest and hid these precious articles under his tent and violated the laws of God for conquest. And as a result of that, God withheld his favor and allowed his people to lose. Now, the whole story of the conquest of Canaan has been the subject of great controversy. I remember reading a, a curriculum that was written for high school kids in a particular denomination several years ago, and I was asked uh, by the session of the church I was serving to review this curriculum to see how it was. And And as I read the Old Testament sections of this curriculum, I found this theme being repeated over and over again, that the Old Testament literature reveals not the character of God in his love and grace, but rather it is the record of a primitive people who from their ancient perspective attributed to God the causal force for their own bloodthirsty uh, warrior mentality. And specifically, what is mentioned is the conquest of Canaan as an example of an activity that God couldn't possibly have been involved in. And the curriculum went on to say that in light of our understanding of God gleaned from the New Testament, we know that God would never authorize such a bloody conquest as he does here, in which he institutes this uh, most offensive practice of all, 
the practice of what is called the harem, or the ban, where God calls the Jewish people in this conquest not only to capture the land and to destroy the cities, but also to kill all of the inhabitants, men, women, and children. It seems, again, utterly ruthless. How could such a war be called holy war when it is so brutal? That was the objection raised in this curriculum and is raised by many people today who just can't seem to understand what is going on here in the book of Joshua and how anything like this could be called holy. Well, we remember from our study of the Exodus that over and over and over again, God is saying to his people, I am pouring out my grace on you, not because you deserve it, not because you are any better than these people who are given to paganism and idolatry and immorality and utter godlessness. The inhabitants of Canaan were uniformly wicked and in opposition to the things of God. And God said, I am going to give you this land that I promised to Abraham, not because you're any better than they are, but that you may receive my grace and learn of me. Now, God earlier had a far more brutal manifestation of his judgment when he wiped out the whole world with the flood. And he makes it clear throughout Scripture that there will come a day of judgment when his wrath is poured out against every form of paganism and every form of godlessness. And what he's saying here is, Joshua, you are going to be an instrument of my justice against the Canaanites. The Canaanites are going to receive justice. You are going to receive mercy. And I am going to cleanse this land because it is an unholy place. And this is a holy war to recapture my glory by exterminating all of the principles and powers of defilement that are already there. And when you go in there, I want you to demolish this place because I'm building a new nation, a holy people. And I don't want this nation to be contaminated by the paganism and godlessness that already exists there. And you recall that Joshua and his soldiers did not obey in total measure these uh, requirements of God as they made ungodly alliances and so on with the people there. Now, there's a reason why all of this is, uh, is carried out with, with, uh, with such a detail, and that is to protect Israel from perhaps the most threatening disease that would plague them through their entire history. And that was the problem of syncretism. In one sense, 
the history of Old Testament Israel is the history of syncretism. And what is syncretism? Syncretism involves a blending or mixing together of disparate elements from different sources. As soon as the Jewish people occupied the promised land, they began to incorporate into their own religious practices pagan elements. We think of the contests that take place between the prophets and Ahab and Jezebel and all of that because even the king was engaged in establishing pagan altars and worshiping Baal and all of these contests that go on in the Old Testament are designed to stop the intrusion of pagan elements, magic, sorcery, idolatry, that sort of thing, into the nation of Israel. Israel is to practice ethnic separation so that they may not mix with other cultures and become defiled because there will be a light to the nations. But again, the history of Israel is the failure of Israel to carry the harem through to its fullest. And instead, they make friends with the pagans and they begin to build bridges to the pagans. And it's a two-way street. And pretty soon, paganism is moving more heavily across the bridge into Israel than the light of God is moving across the bridge into the ancient nations. And so, the holy war was designed to minimize the influence of paganism on Israel. At the end of the book of Joshua, there's a marvelous recapitulation again of the covenant promises that had been made. Another dynastic succession celebration takes place where Joshua brings all the people together to renew the covenant that God had made with their fathers once again. For now, Joshua is old And he is about to die. And it's on that occasion when he says to the people of Israel, Choose you this day whom you will serve. If God is God, then serve Him. And he goes on to say, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the book ends in this context where all of the people who are gathered there now possessing the promised land say before God and His witnesses in the presence of Joshua, we will serve the Lord. And they swear and they vow to keep the ordinances of God and the commandments of His covenant. And Joshua says something ominous to them that kind of foreshadows the rest of Old Testament history. After these people had sworn publicly that they would keep the law of Moses and keep the terms of the covenant, God, Joshua said to them, you cannot keep this covenant for God is holy. You cannot do these things because God is holy. Alerting us to this message that comes through in every page of the Old Testament that no matter how much is achieved, by the flesh, no matter how much is done by these human beings, no one, not Moses, not David, not Joshua, not Abraham, not Isaac, nobody does 
all of the things contained in the law of God because it is holy. And again, preparing us for the coming of the Holy One of Israel, who is our Archagos, our champion, the captain of the Lord of hosts, who alone keeps the laws of the covenant. For more information about Ligonier Ministries, call 1-800-435-4343 or contact us on the web at Ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R dot O-R-G. Or write P.O. Box 54-7500, Orlando, Florida, 32854.